Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. I'm so glad that I have Jeff Redorn in studio. We're going to start a new short mini series. I think we're going to call it something like Bible Basics or Bible 101, and then Bible 201, and then 301, then 401, or Learning from Scratch or Knowing What We Believe. And it's going to be a wonderful study. So if you know someone who has recently come to faith in Christ, or maybe you need to know how you understand the Bible right from the beginning. We're going to talk right from the basics to the more advanced things. We're going to do this over the course of four or five weeks. So we're excited to have Jeff back in. He's a friend of mine, a mentor, a Bible study teacher, and I don't need to give him much introduction because he's on the air with me quite a bit. Jeff, welcome back. Hi, Bill. So when you brought up this idea, I thought this is a wonderful time to understand the basics. And sometimes people who have even been followers for a while have a hard time answering some of the basic questions when they get asked by other people. And it's really nice to have this information refreshed in your mind or to maybe learn, be learning it for the first time. Well, I hope if, that's kind of a good theme or a good goal, uh, objective for this time that we have together is to be able to defend the Word of God as God's Word. And so kind of in a nutshell, that's going to be our objective, I think, over these next few weeks on Bible 101, 201, 301. I'm still working on the outline a little bit of where, where we're going with this I'm thing. I'm cutting you slack. All right. When we get to 401, and then we might do a graduate-level course. <laughs> and then uh, maybe a doctorate. Maybe, yeah, we'll that. figure out. Then I'll, so, I'll send you a, doc, a PhD in the mail. Okay. It'll be good. So, But, you know, when you look at the Bible, it's, it is amazing to me. This is the world's best-selling book of all time. Uh, the Bible sells over 100 million copies every year. It's the most distributed book in the in the entire world. Uh, it's been translated into something like 800 or 1,000 different languages, portions of it. Not enough. Not enough. Uh, it, actually, there are people right now in the church, uh, some of them locally here, Dave Gibson of Grace Church in Eden Prairie, along with several large ministries around the country, are working together to finish the task, to get the Bible translated in every known language around the world. And uh, over the next, uh, I can't remember the goal that they have set uh, in the time frame, but over the next 20 years, they want to finish that that task and, and translate it into all the languages uh, of the world. So the word Bible, what is the Bible? Where did it come from? These are the kind of questions we're going to talk about uh, over the next few weeks. Um, the word Bible, biblios in the Latin and actually in the Greek, it means the word book. So this is the book. And in fact, uh, I think there's 100 million copies of the Bible sold every year uh, around the world. And and uh, it should be listed as the number one New York Times bestselling book every week, but it's never on the list. That's interesting because it has no close second. It, it doesn't even have anything that comes close to right. it. So it, interestingly, I've... We've got some sections today that we'll talk about some interesting Bible facts and some trivia and so on. The Bible, one little trivia fact, is the most stolen book in the world <laughs> as well. <laughs> Isn't there a commandment in that book, yes, in the book I, about I not stealing so. it? Right, right in the beginning. Just yeah, think of how they feel 20. when they get to that part. Thou shall not steal. Yeah. So, 
If you remember, uh, the Gideons were very prolific about putting Bibles in hotel rooms around the country, and uh, uh, and in fact, uh, uh, it, it's there's you can still open a drawer in many hotels today. Uh, especially, I think it's the Marriott chain. I think they still put Bibles in in their drawer. So um, that's where most of them are stolen from. And do you, and actually, I think the Gideons want people yes, they do. to take those Bibles. Yeah. So, um, so what is the Bible? How did we get it? How how old is it? Where did it come from? Who wrote it? You know, all those kinds of questions. Well, I I remember I did a a class. It was called kind of Fundamentals of the Bible 101 with some folks that had indicated that they had accepted Christ at an event. And I think anytime church, anytime we have an event like that where people, you know, check that little box that says, I accepted Christ, we should, as a body, follow up with them and say, okay, will you be willing to sign up for a Bible study where we go through some of these fundamentals of God's Word? Well, I was in one of those classes and we started studying some passages and looking in the books. And one guy asked a question, and I realized we need to start at, at, some, at a more fundamental level. And he said, why, are, why is there a one or a two in front of some of the names of the books? And it's like, wow. All right, let's back up a step and figure out, because obviously if you have a one or two, it's, Paul's first letter to the Corinthians and Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. But that was the level of understanding, or I guess lack of understanding, that this man had. So we started back at the beginning. So the Bible consists of the Old Testament and the New Testament, two different divisions of of the book. The Old Testament has 39 books, 18 historical books, four prophetic books, or poetic books, and 17 prophetic books, major prophets and minor prophets. The New Testament, kind of the second half of the Bible, if you will, has 27 books, four gospel books, one historical book, 21 letters known as the epistles, and one prophetic book, uh, Revelation, that's at the back of the book. The Bible in whole, Old and New Testament, was written by over 40 authors over a 1,500-year period on three continents in three different languages, and yet there is one consistent theme through all of these 66 books. Now, one of the things we need to then discuss is, wow, how did that happen? Are these books the words of 40 different men over 1,500 years, or is this the word of the Lord? And as we will see, and as the evidence we will point to, we are going to uh, try to show that the authorship of Scripture actually is God and not the men that actually penned the words. Some notes on the Old Testament. The Old Testament was given to this people group that God called out the Jews uh, from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, so the descendants of Jacob, and that people group is who God revealed himself to through prophets and visions and so on, and the collection of the Old Testament books were given to the Jewish people. They were given to Israel, beginning with Moses, right? So the first five books of the Bible, known as the Pentateuch, was written by Moses about 1400 B.C., uh, shortly after the Mount Sinai, the Exodus from Egypt, and Mount Sinai, and so on and so forth. So Moses is the first to start penning the words of the Old Testament in the first five books. Well, over the next thousand years, God revealed himself to many people 
and in many ways to small prophets and large prophets alike, to kings and and uh, who wrote down the, the Psalms and Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and, and the major prophets, Isaiah and Ezekiel and Daniel and the minor prophets and so on. Over a thousand years, God proclaimed or gave his word to his people. So that's the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. Jeff, when, when God refers, him, refers to himself as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, I think when people hear that, they, they, they wonder what that means. Yeah, so this is what I just described, this people group called Israel. And remember, Israel, or genetic Israel, are all the descendants of Jacob. And God changed Jacob's name from Jacob to Israel. And then his 12 sons are the 12 tribes of Israel, Mm -hmm. right? So God made a promise to Abraham. Uh, It's actually called the Abrahamic Covenant. That promise, which has many components, but one of them is that you and your descendants will possess this land forever. Oh, huge, big part of this promise. That the descendants of Abraham, which it was passed to Isaac, which that promise was passed to Jacob, still stands today. And it says to Israel, you are my chosen people, my called out ones. And to you, I'm going to give my law, my prophets, my word, and you are going to keep them. And so I think that's when when word says he is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that it conjures up all of that, which we just talked about. Mm-hmm. He's also distinguishing himself from the many gods in Egypt. Yeah, and I've, I've read some studies, and I haven't looked at this a lot, but the, the plagues that came on Egypt were actually coincide with attacks specifically on some of the Egyptian gods of the day. And it's like God saying, I'm more powerful than that God. <laughs> yeah. I'm more powerful than that God. I have dominion over that God. I have, do- you know, all the way through. And so I ha- don't quote me on this. I haven't studied that a lot, but I've heard that taught. All right. So what happens next? We end the Old Testament with the book of Malachi, this prophecy uh, for uh, actually one of the prophecies is at the end of the book is that this Messiah would come and he'd be born in Bethlehem and he'd be preceded by one, John the Baptist. Oh, we know that's going to happen, right? But uh, uh, so the book ends and God is then silent with Israel for about 400 years. He was actually not happy with Israel. They weren't really following his ways. They weren't trusting in him. They weren't following him. So he went silent. And for 400 years... God said nothing. No prophets, no no words, no visions from him. And so this is called uh, the 400 years of silence. It's during this period of time that uh, we had some characters like Antiochus Epiphanes, who sets up an abomination in the temple of God. And, and uh, we have the Maccabean revolt as a result of that. And so we have uh, um, uh, the, all of the events of the Maccabean uh, rev, uh, revolt. Uh, this is when Rome then came in in the in the early first century BC and conquered Israel around 65 BC or so. And this is how Rome then became uh, uh, rulers over the land of Israel. And that is the state of Israel: 400 years of silence from God, being conquered by Rome and under Roman occupation, in which we then start. The New Testament. Okay. Now, Jeff, I'm going to, I have to remind you, this is uh, Bible 101. (laughs) And you've gotten carried away already. So we're going to have to stay on course here because we're going to talk about Bible 101 and the next time Bible 201 and then 301 and then 401. So we're going to go through learning from scratch. So knowing what we believe and the characteristics 
uh, that we're going to learn about God in his word. And so we're studying Bible Basics 101 today with Jeff Redorn. After a short break, we'll be right back. Today, we're going to continue 201 next time and 301. We're going to keep going. We want to help you understand maybe you're learning from scratch. Maybe you're a new believer. Maybe you would like to be better equipped to explain some of the simpler uh, concepts of the Bible to new believers. So equipping new believers, equipping you as we talk about things that maybe we haven't discussed since, uh, what, maybe junior high Sunday school, Jeff? (laughs) Yeah, some of this stuff is kind of Sunday school stuff. I I even have a trivia test here for you. You want to do that? Uh, Make it easy. Okay, we'll try. All right, so what's the longest book in the Bible? The longest book. It's probably not Psalms, is it? It is Psalms. Okay, Psalms. Longest book. Do you know the shortest book of the Bible? Um, Oh, Badiah? (laughs) Is that right? (laughs) No, 2 John. 2 John is the shortest one. All right. Um, do you know what the longest and shortest chapters are of the Bible? Uh, Psalm, 119, Psalm 119 is Psalm, the longest. That's the longest. Do you know the shortest? The shortest chapter? Yeah. Um, no. Psalm 117. How many verses? Oh, I don't know the answer. <laughs> What's the shortest verse of the Bible? John eleven thirty five. Jesus wept. Jesus wept. Two words. That's right. Who's the oldest man that ever lived in the Bible? Methuselah. Methuselah. He yeah. 969 years old. Very good. Do you know the first Bible to use chapter and verse references. Um, we talked about this at the break, so I would be, the Geneva I'd be Bible. cheating a little bit if I said Geneva right. Bible. Um, okay, here's one for you. The world's smallest Bible is how big? It's on microfilm, isn't it? <laughs> you're right. You've yeah. heard this. See, you're a radio host. You hear all this stuff all the time. It's actually a uh, scientist etched 1.2 million letters of the Old Testament on a s- tiny silicone disc that can fit on the tip of of a pen. <laughs> so they call it the nano Bible. Yeah. So, but of course, uh, these are just some trivia facts. The Bible is the most influential book in human history. Uh, by the way, this is true. This is true whether or not you believe in God and you believe in his son, Jesus Christ, or not. You do not have to be a believer to recognize that the Bible is the most influential book in history. And as the most significant piece of literature, uh, that's ever graced the earth, do you think we as a nation should study this Bible, uh, whether you're a believer or not? And I think the answer is, of course we should. Uh, I think we as a nation should study the most influential book that's uh, that's ever been written. Uh, and in fact, our nation history has actually a rich heritage of being biblically literate, of knowing the Word of God and studying uh, what is written into it, in it, and the, the impact that it's had on our country and our, and our world. Have you ever heard of the New England Primer? No. This was a tiny little book that virtually every grade school kid got in our country, in, in schools large and small, and it had some very basic 
uh, biblical uh, information in it. For example, when you learned the alphabet, it wasn't A for apple, right? It was A, in Adam's fall, we sinned all. Wow. That was A. Wow. It goes all the way through. P was, for example, P. Peter denies the Lord and cries. So that's how kids learn the alphabet. Z was Zacchaeus did climb a tree, his Lord to see. Oh, I want a copy of this. Oh, it's awesome. It's, I want to learn this. It, it's, I, I bet I could do it in eight months. It, you could probably do it. I will bring you, <laughs> next time I, in, I'll bring my copy of the New England okay, Primer. Okay, cool. Um, it had catechisms in it. It had uh, Bible facts in it. For example, the oldest man, who built the ark? Um, things like, who, who? what was the first murder? Uh, who was the first man? Yep. You know, these are questions that every, not every, most kids in our country for a hundred years from the founding of our country on, uh, many, many, many of them studied and learned the alphabet and learned how to read from this New England primer. It had things like the child's morning prayer. It had questions like, what is sin? Into what state did the fall bring mankind? What is the chief end of man? And every one of these questions would have a response, right? So a reading and a response. What's the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. These are the things we taught our kids Fantastic. 100 years ago. Um, what special act of providence did God exercise towards man in the state wherein he was created? <laughs> the average fifth grader in the United States could answer that question. I doubt that most Christians could answer that question today. Yeah. The average, uh, I think the average elementary kid knew more about Christianity and the Bible than, than uh, most citizens do. And this was given to every, you know, have you ever, I, we talked about this too, Harvard University, for example, even going into college, in their student handbook, this was their number one rule at the very beginning of their handbook. Quote, let every student be plainly instructed and earnestly pressed to consider well the main end of his life and studies is to know God and Jesus Christ, which is eternal life, John seventeen three, and therefore to lay Jesus Christ at the only foundation for our children to follow the moral principles of the Ten Commandments, end quote. That is part of the founding charter of Harvard University. Correct. Hmm. I have a feeling they've taken that out. <laughs> well, their charter is their charter historically, right? I get that. But, yeah, I don't think this is one of their rules, one of their leading principles today. What has happened? You know, you actually go through all all the major universities. Yale, their, their seal has light and truth. Uh, Columbia University had, talks about Jehovah and the divine light. Dartmouth talks about God Almighty in key biblical terms that it brings up. Princeton University has in Latin the inscription of the Old and New Testaments in Hebrew. Um, it is uh, it's amazing uh, how far we have fallen, you know, the mm. heights from which we have fallen from in this country. I looked up from the C.S. Lewis Institute, and they had a little quote on this, and I, I'd like to read it. It says this, The founding fathers read the Bible. Their many quotations from the allusions to both familiar and obscure passages tells us that they knew the Bible and knew it well. They knew the Bible from cover to cover. Biblical language and themes liberally seasoned their rhetoric. 
Their phrases and their cadences of the King James Bible especially informed their written and spoken words. The ideas of the Bible shaped their habits and minds and informed their political pursuits. The Bible was the most accessible and authoritative text for 18th century Americans. We know this by looking at probate records, the records and the catalogs of what people left behind when they died. They reveal that if a family owned a single book, it was almost certainly the Bible. So this was the one book that most Americans would have been familiar with. Now today... And sacred. They treated it as sacred, and it was a family heirloom. It was, and it was passed on from generation to generation. It was a treasured possession. You know, and I think one of the things that we don't realize in this country, even today, even with the, the knowledge and, and Internet and so on, we should know these kinds. There are millions and millions of people in the world today that live in countries who cannot legally own a Bible. They cannot have the Word of God. And I think we have com- grown complacent. We've taken it for granted. Do you know the average American today owns more Bibles than number of minutes they spend reading it every day? Let me repeat that. I, I got it you the got first it? time. Yeah. It's a little sobering, though. It is so sobering. So you might have eight Bibles in your house, and that says you're, you've got more Bibles than... Number of minutes. Number of minutes you spend reading it. Yeah. I think there's a famine in this land for understanding and knowledge of God's precepts, of his word. Um, you know, there's a, uh, um, a Bible museum, the first of its kind in the United States, in Washington, D.C. It was actually uh, uh, founded and started by the Green family of Lobby Hobby fame. And you will see things in this museum that's dedicated to this one book. Things like uh, displays on the Magna Carta, the story of uh, in England in the 13th century, this quest for freedom and liberty based on the Bible's influence of that society. Uh, on the second floor, it has an, a display of the impact of, a, of the Bible around the world, the impact of the Bible on fashion, literature, music, uh, stories of the Bible. On the third floor, you get a feel for what it's like to be a first century Nazarene, uh, and uh, you can experience and live and see how life was lived in the first century in Jesus' day. And the history of the Bible on the fourth floor, we were there one time and we watched a Jewish scribe copying by hand, like they did for centuries, on a uh, parchment, uh, the book of Isaiah, and uh, and the meticulous accuracy in which they did it. And it was fascinating. So now the big question. So here's this book. It claims many things, but the first question we need to ask is, is Scripture from God? That is the big question that we're going to leave for now until after the break. Wonderful. That gives you a chance to uh, just let the tension build because I feel it. I feel it in the <laughs> studio here. Every Everyone's feeling the tension. So we'll take a little break, and you're listening to Jeff Redorn. He's my guest as we're talking about Bible 101. We'll be right back.
It's the afternoon show with Bill Arno. Drive time, drive time. Let's get it started. Jump in your car. What's for dinner? It's the afternoon show with Bill Arno. All right, we're back with Jeff Verdorn. We're talking about uh, Bible basics, the fundamentals, Bible 101. And then next time we uh, meet, we're going to do Bible 201 and then 301 and then 401. If you have always wanted to start from the beginning and understand some basic concepts. And right now we're doing a little bit of a 30,000-foot view, but I think we're going to get into more specifics now, aren't we, Jeff? Well, yeah, because I think the first question or the first specific that we need to address is, is God's Word the Word of God? Is the Word of God from God? And uh, I think the simple answer is, is that uh, the Bible declares that it is from God. And so, yes, we know that the Bible is from God. Now, I know what you're saying. Some of you are thinking, well, wait a minute, wait a minute here. Isn't that using some kind of circular reasoning? The Bible is the word of God because the Bible says so? You can't do that, right? But I contend, no, you actually can. This is a valid uh, proof that the Bible is from God, that that he that the author identifies himself in Scripture is significant. Um, if I was to hand you a book and, and ask you, you know, well, who wrote this book, the first thing you're going to do is look at the cover and see who the author is, right? Right. And so that is the place to start. Well, the author of this book has identified himself, and it is the Lord God. He says he is the author of this book. He says, for example, in 2 Timothy 3.16, that all Scripture is God-breathed. It is from God. Thessalonians says that you accepted the Word of God not as the Word of men, but as it actually is the Word of God. Uh, John says, my teaching is not my own. Jesus says it comes from him who sent me. So these words that we read, even though they were penned by men, are actually from God. This then raises the question, this might be a little bit of Bible 201 here, but this raises the question then of inspiration. What is then inspiration? How did God communicate to the authors what he wanted written in their letter, in their book? So this is called inspiration. One description says this, the doctrine of inspiration of Scripture essentially teaches that God superintended the human authors of the Bible so that their individual styles were preserved and the end result was precisely what God wanted. It's accurate to say that inspired men of God wrote the Bible. And actually, 2 Peter 1 uh, basically says just that. It says, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So I think that's the picture that we have because we know that each of the books, each of the different authors, their their personality, their style comes through. So some will argue, some theologians will argue that, that there was some kind of a verbal inspiration of Scripture or a direct dictation of Scripture. I don't think God you know, dictated to Paul to write down every word and he, then he just wrote it down. There, there's another theory that's called plenary. Uh, inspiration, where every word is inspired by God, but but men wrote using their own skills, their own vocabularies, their own characteristics, but the Spirit led them somehow to write down what God wanted them to write. So that is uh, kind of a 
there's other versions too that that there's a limited inspiration, there's natural inspiration, there's there's several other ones, but most of them uh, kind of deny that every word of the, it comes from the Lord, and so those are the main ones. So so God declares that the word of God is God's word, and uh, you know if 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 that alone isn't good enough, that this self-declaring is not good enough for many people, well, then we have to turn to other reasons how we can show that this book came from God, all right? So I, these are kind of broken down into some internal evidences and some external evidences, all right? So first, we'll cover some of the internal evidences. First, it's self-proclaiming. We just talked about that. Secondly, we have, especially in the New Testament, eyewitness accounts of what actually took place. And these eyewitnesses wrote down what they saw. So if you're in a court of law, for example, one of the strongest pieces of evidence or types of evidence is eyewitness accounts. I saw Joe hit Bill. You know, I saw it. It's, I'm a witness to it. Now, as long as that witness proves credible... That testimony can be very powerful in a court of law. Well, determining whether or not we're going to believe the Bible is kind of like a court of law. We have to we have to eliminate reasonable doubt, come to a fair conclusion of the evidence that present, that is presented to us that this is God's word. So the New Testament is full of direct eyewitness accounts. Now, are these witnesses credible? Well, the answer is very. They are very credible. Um, I like to say that in the New Testament, of what they have written, no historical event, no archaeological discovery, no scientific truth has ever been discovered that contradicts anything written in the Word of God. Isn't that amazing? We have not proved the Bible wrong in anything. Now, there's many people who claim there are contradictions in the Bible and many things, and we'll get to this in terms of history and archaeology, archaeological evidences that we have found that actually prove the narrative of the Bible. We'll get to some of those. And there's been some archaeological discoveries that have, in fact, uh, contradicted what people have said, like there's no uh, Hittite society, and then all of a sudden, after an archaeological dig, they found a Hittite society. They did. That's one of the items in my list, and external evidences archaeological evidence that backs up the narrative of Scripture. And like I said, there's been no archaeological discovery or historical finding that has ever shown anything in the Bible to be proven wrong. Not to mention we have friends that are Hittites. <laughs> well, you, you well, I don't I mean, hang out with those guys. But you don't. Well, I've got no, okay. Hittite friends. Okay. So, um, second, by the way, one of the other main lines of thinking, and, and uh, I think one of the most wonderful books uh, written is The Case for Christ by Lee Strobel that walks through the evidences for the basically the eyewitnesses' accounts of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. One of the most powerful lines of thinking is that there's been lots of religious kind of zealots who will die for what they believe in. People die for what they believe in, but they don't necessarily know for certain whether or not it's true or not. Wow. The disciples pretty much all died for their faith. And they would have known. So what's the difference? They would have known absolutely whether or not they were dying for something that was true or something that was a lie. They would have known for certain whether or not Jesus really rose from the grave or not. And rare is the man who will die for a lie, what they know 
is a lie. You see the distinction? Oh, yeah. And these men, knowing the truth of whether or not Jesus rose from the grave or not, died for that belief. And they would have been in the position to know whether it was true or not. So their testimony, their eyewitness testimony, is what we have today in the New Testament. Um, So let's not discount and just write off their testimony. Uh, It is powerful and it is reliable. The uniqueness of the Bible. Here's another kind of category of internal evidences. Uh, The Bible is unique from every other book on the planet. Uh, Like we said, it's 66 books, 40 different authors, over 1,500 years, and yet three different languages, and yet it has one common, consistent message. I think if you got 40 people in a room over the course of a week and told them to write, you know, 66 different books, uh, all together they couldn't get it all consistent in one theme, let alone over 1,500 years. Uh, I think that shows, that's one of these proofs that says there's really one voice behind all of these books. The circulation, it's been around the world, most circulated book in history. Uh, It's survivability. People have been trying to destroy this book for thousands of years. And uh, some of the stories are amazing. Uh, Antiochus Epiphany ordered all of the Jewish scrolls destroyed, which led to that Maccabean revolt that we talked about. And that's what Jews celebrate Hanukkah today is uh, their celebration of their victory in the Maccabean revolt. Um, But the one area of internal evidence that I think is the most powerful is fulfilled prophecy. There is no other book in the world that has predictive prophecy for events that are provably fulfilled according to the prophecy. In fact, Tim O'Hay once said, fulfilled prophecy is like God's fingerprints on the Bible. Now, there are literally hundreds of prophecies in the Bible about people and places and events and nations, and they are all fulfilled, provably fulfilled, exactly as God said they were going to happen. So, for example, there's prophecies for Israel being taken captive into Babylon, for example. Well, God said that Israel would be taken into Babylon by their king, Nebuchadnezzar. This is before Nebuchadnezzar, for 70 years. Then they'd return to their land at the end of that 70 years. And then in Isaiah, God tells them Cyrus, the king who who ordered the return of Israel— God names Cyrus in Isaiah 150 years before Cyrus even existed. And he says, this is my servant who will basically return you to the land, Isaiah 45 says. So do you see what I'm saying? God told us the name of the king 150 years before it happened, that he'd be the one who would order Israel back to the land. (laughs) It's amazing. Yeah, it is spectacular. Daniel. In the book of Daniel, there's a vision of the statue. Remember the statue that they saw? The head of gold, the arms, so on. Well, that is predictive of the next kingdoms after Babylon, that Babylon would fall, the Medes and the Persians would take their place, then the Greek Empire, then the Roman Empire, and by the way, the feet of clay and iron, the ten toes, that's a revived Roman Empire. So those nations came upon the world. And, in fact, it even goes as far as to say that the Greek kingdom would be divided into four, and it was. Um, this prophecy, in fact, some have commentated on some of the Daniel prophecies, says that it so accurately predicts the coming kingdoms that the book of Daniel must have been written after the fact 
because it's got to be an historical account, not a prophetic account. That's how accurately it predicts the future. The other big area, of course, is all the prophecies for the Messiah. One of the primary purposes of the Old Testament is to tell Israel and tell the world that God was going to send this Messiah. And so he has almost 90 individual, unique, direct prophecies to look for of this coming Messiah, that he would be a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that he'd come from the line of David, that he'd be preceded by one, John the Baptist, that he'd be born of a virgin in the town of Bethlehem, that kings would come and give him gifts, that he'd come up out of Egypt, that he'd have a ministry in Galilee, that he would teach in parables, that he would perform miracles, that one day he would enter Jerusalem on a donkey and be betrayed by a friend for 30 pieces of silver. All right, Jeff, I think we need to take a little break. We're learning some Bible basics, Bible 101. We're going to do this for the next several uh, times with Jeff. We're going to go from Bible 101 to Bible 201 and then on from there. We'll take a short break and be right back. Jeff Ferdorn, we're talking about Bible Basics 101. We're going to move on to 201, 301, 401, and some extensive graduate level class yet to be determined. But let's just get the basics going. I, I know, Jeff, this has been kind of a, a start, and I'm excited for all the things we're going to cover regarding understanding the Bible, especially if you're a new believer or you know someone that is a new believer. You can you can send these messages on, help them get started, and knowing what they uh, will want to know about God's Word. Yeah, kind of this concept of the reliability of Scripture. Can we trust what's written in this book? And uh, kind of the topic that we're on right now is to these internal evidences, and, and I think one of the most powerful evidences is fulfilled prophecy, that God tells us what's going to happen in the future. There's no way for a mortal man to tell us with accuracy uh, what is going to happen in the future. But God, knowing the end from the beginning, he is able. And so he gives us glimpses in these prophecies um, about what's going to happen in, in the future. And they have to come true exactly as God said. That is, by the way, in Deuteronomy, the true test of a prophet. A true prophet of God makes predictions that come true exactly as the prophet says. And, of course, only God can do that. So we are talking about the prophecies for the Messiah. One of the largest category, obviously, of the Old Testament predicting the New Testament are all these prophecies about the coming Messiah. So in Acts, for example, it says this. This is Acts 26. But I have had God's help to this very day. And so I stand here and testify to small, great, and like. This is Paul talking. 
I am saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen, that Christ would suffer and be the first to rise from the dead, would proclaim white to his own people and to the Gentiles. So Paul in Acts is making the argument that the things that have transpired with this man named Christ uh, were predicted in the Old Testament, and which is what Luke 24 says. Remember Jesus on the road to Emmaus? He's yeah. walking the, to the two men, and it says that he said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. The New Testament is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. So it's the completion. God told us what's going to happen. That's the Old Testament. It happened. Christ came, born of a virgin, uh, had a ministry in Galilee, taught, died on a cross, and rose again. It happened. And then God told us and documented for us by faithful witnesses what actually happened. And that is the New Testament. There's one more prophecy that I just, if we're going to talk about fulfilled prophecy, this is one of the most amazing prophecies in all of Scripture. And that is this prophecy of Daniel 9. The Daniel 9 prophecy, and we we won't spend a lot of time on this, but the Daniel 9 prophecy sets up the, the timing of the first coming of Jesus and actually sets the stage for the second coming, the outline, if you will, of the second coming of Jesus. But I want to focus on the first coming of Jesus. God says that this judgment is decreed for Israel from one point until the Messiah would come. And then he gives a time frame for this. And people, when you figure this prophecy out and understand it properly, you realize that 500 years before Jesus came, God told Israel and thus the world in his word the exact day that the Messiah would come. In other words, this prophecy states that after so much time on this day, the anointed one would come. And the fulfillment of that prophecy is literally to the day that Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey and for the first time accepts the praise of Israel, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's this Palm Sunday, the Sunday before the final week of Christ, which was prophesied in the Old Testament. Should the world have known that the Messiah was coming, that he came, and should the world know today that he's already come and died and rose again? And the answer is yes, the Bible says so. Are you going to be able to explain that a little bit more? Or is that a whole nother hour? Because <laughs> that well, is fascinating to say 500 years before to the day. It's pretty pretty captivating. Yeah, I'll, well, I'll throw in this one thing. So the, the prophecy says that the start of it is from the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one comes, there will be this period of time. Uh, and it, it's described as 69 sevens in the prophecy, but that's specifically 173,879 days. So you, you calculate that out, um, which takes some time. And by the way, if you want to know more about this, there's a book entitled um, um, The Coming Prince by Sir Robert Anderson. And he goes through and explains all of this prophecy in amazing detail. So what is the day in Scripture that there was a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem? Well, you go through Scripture and you realize Ezra and Nehemiah are the two books of the Bible that describe Israel 
returning to Israel from Babylon. And in Nehemiah chapter 2, there's this decree by the king to give uh, uh, Nehemiah orders to go restore the city, the city that he was crying about. Remember the king? Why do you look so sad, Nehemiah? And so he gets orders, a decree, to go rebuild the city. Well, we know what day that was. We actually know what day. That was in March 445 B.C. Well, now we just add this time frame that Daniel 9 says, the 69 sevens understood properly. And guess what? We come to April 6, 32 A.D., Sunday, April 6, in the Julian calendar, by the way, that's an aside, uh, 32 A.D., the day that Jesus rides into Jerusalem. So from the day, so the Daniel prophet, from the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one comes, the Messiah comes, there will be this amount of time. And guess what? It was fulfilled exactly, precisely as God says. Now, here's one last thing. These prophecies, God, when it comes to predicting the future, he's batting a thousand. He never misses. So can we trust him for the things that he said are going to happen in the future? Well, of course we can. And I love to teach on the end times, God's prophecies, God's predictions of what's in store for us. And it's a wonderful study of our hope in Christ that one day he will come, sound a trump, we will be caught up to heaven, and we will be with the Lord forever. That's an amazing prophecy as well for the second coming of Christ. And will he fulfill the promises he's made to us? The answer is, again, an emphatic yes. Absolutely. And, and you know, there's no other religious text anywhere in the world that has this kind of predictive prophecy. So if someone asks me, why do you trust the Word of God? Um, one, it's one theme from beginning to end. You can tell that one author wrote this thing. It's God. It's self-declared as being God's Word. It's internally consistent. It's got a unity of message from beginning to end. Uh, and let's not forget, um, by, and then, of course, prophecy, uh, which to me is just God's fingerprints, as Tim Mohey said, on the, on the Bible. It's the only book of the Bible that has this kind of, uh, the only book in the world that has predictive prophecy, Scripture. Um, but let's not forget one more in, in the last minutes here, is the evidence of changed lives. There's no other book in the world that people have read and have their lives fundamentally transformed from dark to light, from death to life. And that is the power of of the gospel, of the good news of Jesus Christ, that he came and died and rose again. And if you believe that, you will be also fundamentally transformed. As Paul writes to the Corinthians, you will be made a new creation in Christ Jesus and have eternal life, become a child of God, and live forever with him. Jeff, is that why they call it the good news? <laughs> I'm just curious. Isn't that great news? It is the best news. I've never heard better news. Yeah. It's, uh, and that can be your life today. It can be your reality right now. Your eternity can change in the twinkling of an eye if you believe and put your faith and trust and hope in Jesus Christ right now. Do you remember we were talking about Thomas a couple weeks ago? And he didn't believe the testimony of his fellow disciples. He demanded proof. And we, and, and Jesus has 
Stop doubting, Thomas, and believe. Blessed are you because you believe. He says, you've believed now because you've seen me. Blessed are those who believe who haven't seen. Well, that's us. We don't have an opportunity to see the risen Lord Jesus. So we have to rely on the testimony that is recorded in God's Word. And, uh, and, and the message of Bible 101 here today is that that message is reliable. It's trustworthy. It's true. We can believe it. And it declares this simple truth that Christ came according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, and he rose again on the third day, just as the Old Testament proclaimed, and he is now ascended to heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father. And if you believe in him, you will have eternal life. What a great message. And I think that's a great way to end uh, 101 because it sounded uh, throughout this hour that we had a lot to look at and to process, and it's a great ending to a great start. Jeff, when we come back uh, next time, we'll do Bible 201 and Sounds go good. from there. Wonderful. I'm looking forward to it. As am I. Jeff Redorn's been my guest for this hour. If you know someone that would love and benefit from this, you can go to MyFaithRadio.com and uh, send them the podcast. That's all the time we have. Have a great night, everyone. See you tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.